we are going to have a standalone sermon today as we look at um, what it is and what it means to be an elder uh, at Remedy Church, or actually in general, because today we are installing uh, Chris Miller and David Reese at the close of the service as elders here at Remedy Church. And generally, um, whenever uh, elders are being installed at Remedy, we, um, I usually preach a sermon on elders just so that uh, everybody can understand what it is that they're being installed to, what it means to be an elder. Um, and so uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. If you um, are wondering, like, well, okay, if this is a sermon on elders and four kind of four elders, how does that fit into what's going on in my life? Uh, so here's how. Uh, you, um, if you're not um, ever going to be an elder ever, then this is still for you because... Elders are also Christians, and a lot of these things that are written about the qualifications for elders, what should happen in their life, how they interact with people, how they care for people, these are all still things that Christians can do in their life. So as you hear the things that are being said that elders are called to do and elders are called to be, be qualified, etc., um, realize that as Christians, these things should be in your life as well. Um, and so as we go through the sermon today, things that you know, hey, that's something Christians should do, not just elders, then then write those things down so that you can think, I need to make sure that, you know, I'm thinking about that, having that in my life, etc. So um, I just want to make sure as we're going through from the, from the outset that um, a sermon that's primarily kind of about what elders do is also equally in a lot of ways applicable to everybody here, even though you might not ever be an elder. And so uh, second thing is, uh, before we go in, I want to make sure you understand uh, what an elder um, what it is in regard to why I would say we need to have talk about elders. So um, in the Bible, in first Timothy chapter three, um, Paul lists out qualifications for elders and deacons in first Timothy three, one through seven is the elders and eight through 13 is the deacons. And so in doing that, as he's writing to Timothy, who's a pastor, so this is a pastoral letter um, in doing that. So in a pastoral letter, which are first and second Timothy and Titus, then we're given some specifics on what uh, leadership in a church looks like. And so as you're reading through first Timothy three, you realize that there are a lot of titles and things that churches can have, and they're totally fine from worship leader to children's director to youth minister. All these things are fine, um, but you don't have to have those things in a church. But what you do have to have in order to at least follow the scriptures are elders and deacons. So every church, when it comes to leadership, should have elders. And elders just means pastor or overseers. There's lots of words that all mean the same thing. But all churches, in order to follow what the Bible would say to have uh, um, as offices of the church, should have elders and deacons. Now, we're not going to be talking about deacons. We're just going to be talking about elders. They can have other things, which is fine. Worship leaders and children's directors. We have some of those, obviously. Um, But what a church needs to have is elders and deacons. And so today, at the end of the service, we're going to install Chris and David as elders, as more to, be, to have more pastors here. And so um, what we're going to be looking at today is what is seven questions really on eldership. You can go ahead and put those up. Um, these are the seven things we're going to go through. Now, as you're looking at it, you're going to say, wait a second, number seven is not a question. I know. Uh, I didn't form it in the form of a question. If we can all, if we want to, we can say six questions and a, and a closing challenge. But nevertheless, these are the things we're going to look at. What is an elder? What's required to be an elder? Who are the elders? Uh, what does an elder do? How are they to elder or how are they to pastor? Same kind of thing. Um, 
How should you view or interact with an elder? And then lastly, the closing challenges. And so some of these um, will be short and some of them will be, each question will be lengthy. Like number four is really the meat of where we'll unpack a text. Number four will be more lengthy. Um, You know, number one or number uh, three will be shorter. So anyway, we're going to answer those seven things or six things and and close with a closing challenge. So um, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. But uh, as I said, just remember that a sermon on elders is totally applicable to every person here. Because as you hear the things that elders should have in their lives, these are things that all of us should have. Mostly, all of us should have as Christians. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll start. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for uh, the chief shepherd, Jesus, the chief elder, the chief pastor, Jesus, that you have put forward as your only son to die for us on the cross, to forgive us of our sins. Um, without whom none of this um, is possible. And so we thank you for the good news of Jesus that he would die on the cross to save us of our sins. And because of that, you've called us to be Christians. And as Christians, you've called us um, to be in churches and plant churches and inside little local expressions of your bride in these churches. You've called people to lead them as pastors. And so, Lord, we want to understand that this morning in light of the gospel, in light of Christ, and in light of your word. So help us get insight. I pray that as we um, read this and as we understand it, um, that the things that are totally applicable to everyone here, um, the things that should happen in their lives, that we would put those things into practice. And as well, Lord, um, the things that exclusive to elders, that the church would see those things and want to pray for those things to happen in the life of their elders. And they would deeply desire those things to be in the, in the pastor's lives. We love you, Lord, and ask for uh, the Holy Spirit to come and teach us now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, talking about the governing bodies of, of a church or those that lead, uh, it, generally the kind of the, the theological word is church polity. And um, this church polity, it's not, a, it's not a primary issue. It's not a gospel issue. But Mark Dever says it this way. He said, the gospel is not at stake in understanding church polity. But this doesn't mean that it's still not an important issue. So as we're talking about elders and deacons, um, it, it, it would be in a second tier, not a first tier. First tier is the gospel, you know, the good news of Jesus and understanding um, what salvation is and getting it right. Um, but second tier uh, would be other things. And one of those would be church polity. And so it's still a, an important issue. It's still something that is um, important for us to understand and how to um, set up the church in accordance with the way the scriptures would have us in regard to leadership. So um, we're going to look at these seven things and try to understand what it is that the Bible says about what it means to be an elder. So first is what, what is an elder? What is an elder? And we'll use these, these terms synonymously, uh, interchangeably as we go through when you see elder or pastor or overseer or bishop. All these are just the same kind of interchangeable words. They all mean the same thing. What, what would be the office of pastor, elder? Um, overseer. So an elder is this, an elder is a pastor, same word, who does this, who shepherds, that means lovingly oversees through, oversees the people of God in his local expression through doing these things, through protecting, teaching, leading, managing, caring for the practical needs of Jesus as people. An elder is not merely a, an elder bar, is not merely a part of a council or a board member that weighs in on big church financial decisions or casts big long-term plans. They might do those things. And of course they probably will do those things, but that's not exclusively what they do. They also, um, 
in a, in a much more day-to-day um, type thing is protect, teach, lead, manage, care for all the practical needs and the spiritual needs of God's people. And so as one important theologian says it this way, uh, to talk about what an elder is, first and foremost, a pastor is a Christian before they're a pastor. This means that they need a savior as pastors, just like the church, because they are sinners too. They have function and role in the church, similar to the father and a family. They're called to protect and nourish God's family. They're called to model Jesus like everyone else should. They must lead with humility and desire to serve others. They're called to teach the word publicly and privately, but also they are a sinner just like everyone else and need a savior just like everyone else. This important theologian, of course, is Pastor Joe Mueller. Um, So this is what an elder, this is what is an elder. The second thing, and as I said, some of these are quicker and some of these are slower. Number two is what is required to be an elder. Now, I I want to spend quite a bit of time on this, but for time's sake, I don't have quite a bit of time. So we're just going to have to read the scriptures and let the the word stand on its own as we read, because I do want to spend more time on another question. But there are two key texts that tells us what's required to be an elder. And so these requirements or qualifications are listed in two key texts, and you can see them in 1 Timothy chapter 3 which would be verses one through seven and Titus chapter one. We're going to start at verse nine, but primarily the qualifications are listed in verse six through nine, but you can see they're listed here, 21 biblical qualifications. And so if you read both texts together, um, there's overlap between first Timothy chapter three and Titus where some of them are, are, are listed in both. And there's some unique ones in first Timothy three and some unique ones in Titus one. But if you put all of it together and at my count, there's 21 different qualifications that a pastor would meet in order to be able to become a pastor. So, um, let's start in first Timothy chapter three. Uh, I'm not going to go through all the qualifications one by one as much as I really, really want to, but I am going to key in on the very first verse and just make, make a point to make sure we understand something. But, um, uh, as you read these qualifications, let's, let's remember, you know, when we see things like that, he's not violent, not quarrelsome. He's not a lover of money. He's self-controlled. He's respectable. He's hospitable. These aren't like the things that the varsity Christian should have, but the rest of the congregation doesn't have to. That's not varsity JV. And it's not like the pastors are the varsity and the congregations, the JV. Don't think of it that way. When you read these things, just think, oh, I'm a Christian. I should be self-controlled and respectable and hospitable. And I should not be a drunkard. I should not be violent. I should be gentle. I should not be quarrelsome. We're all um, in a a very similar way as Christians called to live out these things in our life. So anyway, um, verse one, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that just means elder pastor. If anyone aspires to overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires a noble task. So let's just stop there before we get into the qualifications and make sure we understand 1 Timothy 3.1, the way that I think the scriptures are actually uh, helping us understand. When we see if, if anyone aspires or if any man aspires to the office of elder, he uh, aspires to a noble task. I, I read this to mean every man in the church should aspire to the office of elder. Every single man, you may not become an elder at remedy. You may not become an elder somewhere else, but nevertheless, every man should always aspire to the office of elder. 
You should deeply desire to want to have these things be in your life. So much so that you would rise to a noticeable level to the rest of the pastors in the church. That they would say, oh, look at this. This guy, he could come and he could be one of the fellow elder pastors here at Remedy. Helping us lead and apply God's word to the congregation. So when I read this, if anyone aspires to the office of elder, I think every man should aspire. They might not become one. But nevertheless, they should always see. Why would you not? Why would you not want to have these things happening in your life? So uh, you don't aspire because you think you're a good leader and you'd like to have a position in the church so that everybody looks up to you and thinks you're cool. But, but you should aspire because you would say, I love this church. I love these people. I love God's word. Um, I desire to be godly. I desire to be used by God. I desire to lead and serve the church if God would allow me to do so. And so if you do aspire, then you should. This isn't, I do not think this is wrong. If, if you are a man who aspires to be a, a pastor at Remedy, you should come and talk to the elders and say, I think the Lord is calling me to aspire to the office of elder. Would you meet with me over this term basis? And let's try to figure that out and let's see. Um, because you very well could be. But every man should aspire to the office of elder. And if you don't become one, it doesn't mean that, oh, you stink and you're trash or anything like that. It just means that, that at this particular time, at this particular church, it might not happen. But it doesn't mean that one day it might not be at this church or somewhere else. I think every man should aspire to be um, an elder. Not everyone will become one, but everyone should aspire. All men need to continually strive to step up uh, and be used in the church. Anyway, so here we are in verse... Verse one, if anyone aspires to the office of elder, he desires a noble task. And here are the qualifications. Therefore, an overseer, pastor, elder must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. This able to teach uh, is different than what you would look in the qualifications of deacons. It's what sets the elders apart from the office of deacon. The deacons um, should should not necessarily have to be able to teach. If a deacon can teach, great. But an elder must be able to be able to teach, stand in front of you, communicate the truths of God's word, explain it to you um, in a way that you understand the gospel and you understand what the word is saying. So he must be able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if he pastors this little family right here pretty well, uh, then likely he'd be able to pastor the larger family of God well. Um, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into temptation of the devil. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. That's First Timothy 3, as much as I would love to <laughs> dwell in that. Uh, we have to keep moving. Um, so if you move over to Titus 1, it's just like four pages to the right. Um, we're going to look at the a second description of qualifications of elders. There will be some similar things. I'm in t- t- Titus chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 5. There'll be some similar things in First Timothy 3, but also some, some additional things. So you can see this here. Starting at verse five. And so he's telling Titus, I, I left you that you can appoint elders. So I left you in Crete so that you might not uh, put what remained into order so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every city or in every town as I directed. And here are the qualifications. Verse six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be 
uh, arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so here we can see in those two collections of texts um, what would be basically 21 qualifications. And I'll I'll read them decently fast. Uh, Above reproach, husband and one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, able to teach sound doctrine, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, manage their household well, not a recent convert, thought of well by outsiders, not arrogant, not quick tempered, a lover of good, upright, holy, disciplined, hold firm to the trustworthy word. These would be 21 things that the pastors, um, before they even become elders, they should have those things going on. That's what would make them qualified to even be considered to the office of elder. And so the elders at Remedy Church would meet these particular qualifications in order to be able to become an elder at Remedy Church. Um, so that's, that's number two. That's what uh, is required to be an elder. So that brings us to this next one, which is kind of going to be the place that we'll camp out in. Um, no, not number three. It's number four. But uh, we're about to get number four. But that brings us to number three, which is who are the elders here at Remedy Church? Who are they and how does that work? So the elders here at Remedy Church right now are Joe and I, um, and we're going to have David and Chris become elders. And so those, those are the elders. Just because someone is on staff, you know, if they're, you know, another staff position that leads worship or as a youth minister or something like that, um, that doesn't mean that they're an elder. Some churches do that. Some churches, all staff are also pastors, you know, the, the youth pastor, etc. But at Remedy Church, that's not the case. Um, if you're on staff, that doesn't necessarily mean you're also an elder pastor. It could be, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean. So right now, pastors are those that are called to be elders that would minister the word um, both publicly and privately to the church as well as meet their, their physical, spiritual needs alongside with the elders. But that's, that's who are the elders. Just because you're a staff member at a church, not just Remedy, but any church, doesn't necessarily also mean that you're uh, a part of what would be the, the, uh, the elders. So that's who are the elders. What does an elder do? And this is going to be a, a larger part of the sermon. We're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 20, and we're going to see some of the tangible things that elders do week in, week out, um, uh, day in, day out as elders. And so we're looking at Acts chapter 20. And if you're unfamiliar with this, if you weren't with us when we're going through the book of Acts, um, but in Acts chapter 20, Paul had gone to Ephesus. He had planted a church in Ephesus. He had spent three years with them in the trenches day by day, shoulder to shoulder with the elders, making elders, making a church and ministered as an elder with them in Ephesus. And then he left and he had gone up to other places and he had planted some, some more churches further to West. And as he had left, he decided, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and on my way back to Jerusalem, I'm going to pass where I had planted this church in Ephesus. I'm not going to go into Ephesus because then I'll just, I'm, I'm, this is conjecture. I'll end up staying there a while because they were such good friends. So I'm going to, as I'm going back, I'm going to stop at Miletus. I'm going to call the Ephesian elders down to me, to Miletus. I'm going to have this meeting with them. And in this meeting, I'm going to tell them, hey, we're never going to see each other again. We don't have FaceTime. We're never going to see each other again. These are the last things I want you to know about what it means to be an elder in your church and in your city in Ephesus. And he's going to tell them those things, going to get on the boat. And he's going to go to Jerusalem and deliver the, the last little gift. So um, that's where we kind of are in the book of Acts. Paul is on a boat. 
He's stopping at Miletus. He, he summons, if you will, the Ephesian elders to come to him and meet him. And as, as he's there, he's just got a little bit of time with them. And he's, he's going to tell them 10 important things about what it means to be elders. Specifically, this is what you should do. And as he's kind of using the conversation through the narrative, we can, we can draw out 10 things that elders should do. As elders, like literally day in, day out, week in, week out, what they do. So we're, part, we're starting at verse 17 and we'll see those things. So uh, verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. This is Paul. He's in Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and he called the elders of the, of the Ephesian church to come to him. And in verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them. So here's that conversation with Paul with the Ephesian elders. And from that, we get like, what do pastors do? Here's what they do. Verse 18. You yourselves know, he's Paul talking to them. Hey, when I was a pastor with you, you pastors, you know, here it is, how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I first day I set foot in Asia. So the first thing that pastor elders do, you can see it right here on the screen, is that they literally, they should be with the people. They shouldn't be exclusively kind of set apart where they kind of throw down, uh, proclamations to the congregation and they do those things. Instead, pastors should be with them. As the seminary told us, uh, a shepherd should smell like sheep, meaning, you know, they're sheep too, and they should be there with them continually every day. So pastors should be with them. They must uh, know what's going on in the lives of the people so much so that they're knowing their specific needs, both physical and spiritual. And as that's happening, applying God's word to them. So Pastors should be with them week in, week out. I know we live in a very transitory society, much different than it would be in the first century. But to the degree that we can, we certainly try to have this with community groups and different things that are happening all throughout the church. Um, And so, uh, and just as we're with you, we want to be with you. So pastors should be with them. That's the first thing. Number two is there in verse 19, that they would serve the Lord humbly. Another thing they should do is literally serve humbly. You can see that in verse 19. Um, So I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, serving the Lord with all humility. And then he describes what that looks like. The service looks like with all humility and with tears and with trials. So he has those kind of three descriptors of his service, humility, tears, trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so the second thing is that they should serve the Lord. Their ministry is primarily a pastor's Elders ministry is primarily of service to the church, um, just like Christ's primary ministry was service to his people. And he describes that service with three ways, humility, tears and trials, meaning that you're humble as in this is what your posture should be both before God and with your people. Um, Tears that you are um, tender with people. And that third trials, knowing that there's going to be trials as you elder and that you need to be courageous and faithful as a pastor elder. And so Tony Marita shows us an interesting thing about uh, the humility, the tears and trials saying that the gospel of Jesus, the um, death, burial and resurrection for us are not just pastors, but all peoples. The gospel itself is the only thing that actually helps us be humble and be tender and be courageous. He says it this way. The gospel makes us humble because we realize that we don't deserve grace. And so we are as Christians to be the most humble people because we don't deserve grace at all. And yet God has overflowed with grace to us and that we were beggars just looking for bread and Christ gave us far more than we deserve. And so the gospel makes us humble. Therefore, pastors can be humble. The gospel makes us tender because the Holy Spirit outside of being a Christian, we are not as tender as we ought to be. 
but because the Holy Spirit has come inside of us as Christians, the Holy Spirit now has made us loving and gentle people. So we are to be humble and tender. And third, the gospel makes us courageous because in Christ now the greatest fear that we had, which is being disciplined for our sin or punished for our sin or going um, to receive God's wrath for our sin that's been removed. And so we should not fear anything now. We should, certainly shouldn't fear man. And so, so since we don't fear man, we should be courageous. And so the gospel helps us as pastors serve the Lord in these ways where we're humble and tender and certainly courageous. The gospel should do that work, not just in the pastor's hearts, but in all of us, in all of us. The third thing that pastors are called to do um, is, now this is going to be in verse 20 and 21 and 27. So we're going to take 27 and kind of combine it to see the third thing. And that's to teach the gospel and to teach God's word. Verse 20, how it did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, I didn't ever stop for making sure I taught you the Lord's word boldly. And then you can go down to verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 27. He says it almost very similarly for I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. So the third thing that pastors should do is teach the gospel in God's word. Now, just as a side note, just to make sure we know, in verse 27, when Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. This doesn't mean that in three years, Paul literally taught the entire Bible verse by verse to the Ephesian church. That's not possible for him to have done that. Theoretically, but as John Stott says, what he means by saying, I did not shrink from declaring you the whole council is Paul declared the whole council of what's necessary in the gospel in order to be saved. So Paul never shrunk back from being as bold as he could, because we know the gospel is um, for those that are being saved, the aroma of life. And for those that are not being saved, it's the aroma of death. Same message, two different aromas, depending on whether you're being saved or not. And he said, I never, ever shrunk back from declaring you what is wholly necessary in all avenues of, of the gospel so that you could know what it means to be saved. I never stopped doing that. And so at Remedy, we believe the best way that we can do that is by preaching through books. Now, hopefully in 30 years or whatever it is, whenever I retire, I've, I've taught the whole Bible. Maybe not because it's really big, but, but maybe so. Uh, um, I, I hope to one day be uh, not scared of Romans and I want to, I want to go through it, but I'm super scared of it because it's like Paul's magnum opus. Anyway, so, uh, here we see that we're supposed to teach the gospel and God's word and never shrink back from doing that. So elders, they, they faithfully preach the good news of, of, of God's word, but alongside that, just in their own heart. And of course, this would be for you. Not only are they faithfully preach, but they're also to always be affected by God's word and the gospel. Their heart should always be um, tender to the good news continually. And so, he, as he says, I never shrunk back from declaring you the whole counsel of God. That doesn't mean that you've taught every verse. It means that you've taught the whole of soteriology. Soteriology is the, the doctrine of salvation. I've always taught the whole of the good news of the gospel of salvation. All right, that's the third thing. The fourth thing is that what they do is that they follow the Spirit's leading. They, they have to be completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about how he did that in his life in 22 and 23. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I said already he's going to Jerusalem to deliver that gift constrained or led by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, this is astonishing that every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he's being led by the Holy Spirit. So pastors, 
also should be led by the Holy Spirit and follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, interestingly enough, he's saying the Holy Spirit is leading me to trials and persecution and suffering. That's astonishing. And therefore, pastors should realize if that's the the case for Paul, it certainly could be something that could happen to the pastors as well. So pastors follow the Holy Spirit's leading, um, even if it means that uh, persecution or suffering might come. The pastor doesn't put his own needs above the church. He puts the church's need and what the Holy Spirit's leading above his own. And he leads the church towards what the Holy Spirit wants, even if it might be unpleasant for the pastor. The pastor is to follow the Lord, follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Number five, um, and this is more of, a, of an inward thing. Uh, and we'll have another one that's an inward thing in number eight. But as we look at number five, I think it's um, tremendously important for you to realize this is absolutely something that you should have in your own life. And this is in verse 24. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You probably read it on a coffee cup or, or shirt. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So ultimately saying, I don't count my life as precious, but Jesus's life is precious. And the way that I do that is by finishing my my course. And so to maybe uh, summarize that into three words, um, treasure Jesus supremely. The pastor and you, our lives should be, um, as we look at verse 24, made up by the fact that we should treasure Jesus supremely in our life. Tony Marita has a little quote about this verse. He says, the goal of life is not to have a long one, but to have a full one that's been lived to the glory of, of, of Jesus Christ. So it doesn't necessarily mean that our lives are going to be long. They, may be, they might be short, but the life that we get, short or long, should be full, lived to the glory of God. And so you should have this in your life. Your life should be one that's treasuring Jesus supremely, so much so that all that you do should be for the glory of him, also with a pastor. The next thing is that they should minister with a clear conscience. You can see this in verse 25 and 26. So after he says that, he says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He knows that he's not going to see him. Then he says this, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am, quote, innocent of the blood of you all, which is an interesting thing to say, right? It's an interesting thing to say um, as he's saying this. But basically what he's saying, because uh, verse 27 goes with it. Now, I've already kind of pulled verse 27 to say you, you use that to say we we're supposed to preach the whole council. But 27 goes with verse 26. And so, and it starts with that, that four So that means he makes this statement in 26. I'm innocent of your blood. Why? For, and then he makes this statement why he's innocent of their blood in 27. For, I never stopped or shrinked from giving you the whole counsel of God. So the reason why I am not going to be held accountable to you is because I did what God called. I, I, I ministered the whole word. In other words, since I did that, I have a clean conscience. I have a clean conscience knowing that I ministered correctly. So, What we take from this is number six is that a pastor is to minister with a clean conscience, Um, that the things that God calls him to do, 
he does those because Paul never shrunk back from concept, comprehensively teaching the word of God to the people of Ephesus. He knows that he ministered to them in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. He did what God called him to do. He could sleep at night knowing that his ministry to Ephesus was conducted in a way that God desired. And so pastors are conversely or not conversely similarly supposed to do the same thing. They're supposed to minister in a way that they do it with a clear conscience because they've done all that God, the power of the Holy Spirit um, and the forgiveness of Jesus. If they don't do it perfectly, they do it um, in a way that God's called them, which um, Richard Baxter says this is difficult. Pastoral ministry is quite difficult. That's why Richard Baxter in Reformed Pastor says this is not a burden for the shoulders of a child. It's not meant to be someone who can't do difficult things that God calls them to do. Um, if it's not at that particular moment necessarily the most popular, um, but it is what the Lord wants. Again, that's, that takes the Holy Spirit, absolutely. Uh, but the pastor should minister with a clear conscience. The next thing that you can see, uh, and this is back to similarly as treasure Jesus supremely. This is also uh, a, a self-reflection thing that they should do. But the seventh thing is that they should do is that they should literally watch over our own soul. Pastors should watch over their own soul. But, but notice how he says it in verse 27. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring, I'm sorry, it's going to be verse 28. Uh, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. And here it is, 28. He's, Paul's telling them, pay careful attention to, now you would think he would say, since he's talking to elders, the church, which he's going to, but first he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. And then he says, and to the flock and to the church. And that's just, I mean, it's, it's obvious, right? If you're not watching over your own soul, then how can you do that for others? So start with watching over your own soul, that you treasure Jesus supremely, that Christ to you is um, supreme and that you're killing sin. So first in 28a, watch over your soul, pay careful attention to yourselves. And this can easily, as a pastor elder, be one of the most neglected things on this entire list is to watch out for your own soul, but easily also be the most crucial. If a pastor isn't watching over his own soul, how can he lead God's people? As Robert Murray McShane says, my greatest need, my people's, the, the churches, the church that he serves, the church's greatest need is. What would you think it would be? To minister the, the, the word correctly. That's not what he says, right? He says this. My people's or the church's greatest need is my personal holiness. The church's greatest need is the pastor's personal holiness. Which means the pastor must kill sin in his life. Seek it out as Colossians 3, 5, Romans 8, 13. Seek it out and put to death the sin or the misdeeds of the body by the spirit. C.S. Lewis says it this way, and this is for all Christians. A true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. Know what your sin is and hate it and seek it to be killed. Or as Spurgeon says, dear brethren, take care of your life. Be careful of even the minutia of your character. Every little single small aspect of your life is important to you and to God in order for you to be a Christian and even a pastor. Holiness, not giftedness. For a pastor, but holiness is necessary for faithfulness in ministry. Giftedness is good. If you're gifted as a pastor, great. But holiness is better. Holiness is better. So watch over your own soul. And then conversely, it says, when you do that, you can see it in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, I know it's not necessarily the most kind thing to call you a flock. Paul, Luke, 
doesn't mean it. I meant to say Luke doesn't mean it as a, as a put down. Just think of yourself. It just means the church. You're the church. I'm the church. We're all the church. I'm a flock too. Uh, and we, uh, we're, we're called this. And so pastors are called to pay careful attention to them as well, in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer or pastor. And then he tells us even what that looks like to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own, even our own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things. That's um, speaking false doctrine. To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, telling the elders, be alert, remembering that for three day, three years, day in, day out, the entire three years, I never cease, day or night, to admonish everyone, even with tears. So, um, and number seven is look over your own soul. And number eight is look over the church also. And as you look over the church, he says to look over the church in two specific ways. One, look over the people. And number two, look over the, the doctrine. And so let's, let's look at both of those. What does it mean to look over, watch over the flock, look over the people and the doctrine. To look over the people means to have a deep <clears throat> heart for them, care about them, care about what's going on, know what's going on in their life, pray for them, be there for them, truly know them, be nurturing to them, etc. Um, and we just want you to know, like the pastors deeply, if not we won't do it perfectly, deeply desire to do this for you. And so if there's things going on in your life, always come tell us so that we can care for you as the Bible has um, told us that we should do. But the second thing that also that we're told to do is to watch over the doctrine of the church. And we read in 29 through 31, what that looks like. That means that you look, you look over what's happening theologically in the church. You're on the theological lookout for trends Um, locally and big picture, theologically, you study them, you look at them in accordance with the scriptures and you try to understand, um, what the Bible has to say with theological things that are either old or new that are happening so that wrong doctrine is not coming into the church. And when Paul says that you should do this, he says, when you look out for doctrine, making sure that it's correct, you don't do it in an angry or domineering way. Notice how he says it. 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I do not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Not with, you know, screaming, right? With tears. Therefore, the, the theological lookout that the elders, as they watch over the doctrine of the church, is to be done tenderly. You do this with emotions that, of care and love because the people that you're watching are dear to you. And so you want to look over both the people and the doctrine tenderly. Um... I'm going to keep going down to 33. And these are just some more practical matters in verse 33. 32 is just a transition, by the way. Uh, You commend the word and you commend grace. Anyway, keep going. Verse 33. These are just three practical ones. You can go and put it up. That you are avoid greed, work hard, practice generosity. Don't be stingy. Don't be lazy as pastors. Um, You can see it in verse 33. I I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. He worked hard. And all these things I've shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Jesus, how he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Pastors should not be greedy. Pastors can be susceptible to greed just like any other Christian, but they shouldn't do that. They should not be greedy people. Pastors can, just like anybody else, be susceptible to laziness, but they shouldn't be lazy. They should work hard every day um, because the Lord wants pastors and everyone to do this, as it says in Colossians Three seventeen and 21, do your work as unto the Lord, not to yourself, but to the Lord. If you work, if you're doing your work for the Lord, then you work hard because it's, it's, it's for him. And lastly, 
uh, is number 10, love the flock, love the people. Pastors are to deeply love. Now, what I want you to do here is uh, we, we kind of know the setting. Paul's interacted with the Ephesian elders and he's, he's, about to, he's about to finish the conversation and walk back to the boat. So if you can enter into the narrative, like pretend you're there sitting at the story and just try to imagine uh, the deep love that Paul has for the elders and the elders have for Paul here. And just, we can all see it, how it overflows into the lives of the people. The deep love they have. Watch 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. Why would they be weeping? Because they love each other and they know they're never going to see each other again. There's much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul. They kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him all the way out to the ship. And what we see here is that there's deep love between Paul and the elders and elders and Paul, which we know had to have overflowed to the church in Ephesus. And so what pastors do, they love the people. They love them. As Tony Marita says, a pastor is not a cowboy. He's not a CEO. He's not a rock star. He's not a celebrity. He's a shepherd. And what do shepherds do? They love the people so much so that they're willing to leave the 99 to go find the one so that they would come back. Pastors are called to love. A couple other things that aren't in this particular text that pastors do are, I have four others. You'll see them here. Um, In Matthew chapter 18, if someone's caught in sin, 15 says to go to them and try to reconcile them back. If that doesn't work, verse 16 says, get another person and go to them and try to win them back. And if that doesn't work, then verse 17 says, tell it to the church. And that's when the elders would be involved. And so a a responsibility of the elders is to, as it says in number 11, discipline the church in a labor of love. Now, Lord willing, that'll never happen. We don't want that to happen ever here at Remedy, but it is a a responsibility of the elders. Um, After verse 15 and 16 happen, if verse 15 and 16 happen and the person says, oh, you're right, I repent, over. You never have to actually get to what would be verse 17, the discipline and the labor of love. But nevertheless, it is a responsibility of the elders to enact what would be Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Another one comes from those qualifications um, in First Timothy chapter 3, where it says that a pastor, if he can manage and care for his own family, then he can do it for the church. And so the number 12 is that they manage and care for the church. They oversee and give love. And there's some overflow from some of the other ones, but they manage and overcare the church, <clears throat> over, oversee the needs, both physical and spiritual. And of course, the deacons obviously help with the physical of the church. Um, another one is number 13. They just attend to what would be the practical needs of the people of the church. James 5 says this, that if anyone's sick, let them call for the elders of the church. Let them come and pray and anointing with oil. And so principally, if we widen that out just as a principle, obviously elders are called to pray for the sick, um, specifically by coming and anointing them with oil. But even principally, this means elders are to attend to just the day in, day out, physical needs of the church if they're sick, etc., and to come and pray for them. And so that's another uh, responsibility of the elders. And then lastly, this comes from Ephesians chapter four um, in Ephesians chapter four. It says this, and God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Now, I don't think in Ephesians four, these are actual um, offices. I think there's only two offices. I've already said that that's elders and deacons. I think in Ephesians four eleven, he's not listing offices. He's listing um, giftings. So he's given these gifts in the church and he does that so that um, the church would be able to equip 
the, the pastors would be able to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ, which just basically means this to try to, to help us all understand um, the pastors are not the only ministers of the church. The pastors are not the only people that can lead people to Christ. All of us here are ministers because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says we're all ministers of reconciliation. And so one of the pastor's jobs is to equip you, the saints, to do the ministry of the work with us, with the pastors. And so a, a responsibility of the pastors is to equip the church to be able to do the work of ministry. Verse 14, equip the saints um, for equip the saints for ministry and raises up. I don't know why it says it could be say raise, raise up leaders. Sorry. Um, to care and build the church. So those are, those are some of the things that they do. In what way should they carry this out? What's the way that they should do this? And that comes from first Peter chapter five. So, uh, in first Peter chapter five, uh, verses one through six, Peter is closing on his letter and he talks about, uh, and kind of the way, how this should look, how should a pastor pastor, if you will. And this is what he says in first Peter chapter five. So I exhort the elders, that's the pastors among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as the partaker of glory that is going to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God. So how should they pastor? The first way they should do it is by shepherding. We're going to get to the spirit in which they carry this out in just a second. But you can see here, first they're to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Um, shepherding the flock of God. The next one is exercising oversight. You can see that in that same sentence. Shepherding the flock of God is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion as God would give you. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then... Um, and so as you see those two things, you have the word shepherd, which is the Greek word poimen. It just means, I mean, literally like a shepherd. Um, and the way that they do this as a shepherd leads sheep, they do this by the guarding, loving, leading uh, the sheep. In the same way, the pastor does the same thing. They guard, they love, they lead the church to places that help them grow and mature as disciples. So how they do it is that they do it by shepherding. They also do it by exercising oversight. So looking at all the facets of the church, they're thinking about um, large scale discipleship process and just individual people. Where are they in their walk? And they're thinking of all that and they oversee all that trying to maybe the best way to say it is making sure that um, the overall processes of the church and every individual is moving forward in their walk with Christ. They're, they're growing in their sanctification. Um, and that's what pastors do. They shepherd and they oversee. And we know that first Timothy three says they teach and they take those three things. They shepherd, they oversee and teach. And that's how they pastor. But notice here, those are the commands, shepherd, exercise, uh, oversight. We know in first Timothy three teach, but he tells us here the spirit in which those things are to be done, right? You can see it because he adds those things in verse two and three shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, um, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, Jesus is the lead pastor of every church. Um, he's the senior pastor, if you will, appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with, here it is, humility towards one another for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so you can see the spirit in which elders are supposed to shepherd and oversee and teach the spirit in which he gives us four descriptive terms there to do it willingly, not under compulsion 
eagerly for that, not for shameful game, as a good example, not domineering with all humility. So the, the way in which pastors should do this is willing. They shouldn't just say, I guess I got to do it. They want to do this eager. They're not doing it for gain, but because the Lord has called them to it as a good example, they don't dominate or domineer people, but instead as a good example and also humble, there's to be humble as it says, because God opposes the proud. That's the way in which pastor elders should do it. Pastors won't ever do that perfectly, but nevertheless, it's the way that they're supposed to do it. Now that brings us to number six. How should you, uh, interact? How should you view interact with an elder? And I want to, um, I want to think of this as, as kind of like train tracks. Okay. So you've got the right train track and the left train track and they just go on forever. Both are important and both are equal. And you should just kind of think of it as an elder is a member, but he's also an elder. <laughs> and so you interact with, you interact him with, with as, an, as a member, just like anybody else, but you also interact him with an elder in a different way. And I'm trying to say it that way so that you're not thinking in a contrast, like you've got member and elder, but instead just there, there's no contrast. It's just a dual way to think about interacting with and viewing elders. So right train track member first, the way you should interact or view an elder is this. And it's just obvious elders are members just like you. And so in the same way that you would interact with each other, you interact with the elders by just like anyone else in the church, you love, you care, you encourage, you talk to, um, if someone needs something, you talk to them and ask what it is and try to help in the same way. That's the way that you would interact with the elders as well. You wouldn't, um, since we're members as well, you would interact with us in the exact same way. Now, um, not a contrast, <clears throat> but on the parallel track also, uh, elders, pastors are also not just members, but pastors. And so there's a second way you view, interact them with them as well. Um, there's two texts I want to... To highlight for us, the first one comes from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And this is speaking to people in the congregation on how to think or how to view or interact with the leaders, the elders of the church. It says it in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So the first train track is just like a member. But the second train track, not in contrast, but congruently, parallel, alongside. The second way that you interact with is you also um, should, in accordance with the scriptures, right? So in accordance with the scriptures, as elders speak the scriptures to you and tell you things in accordance with God's word and say, this is what you should do, um, you should also obey the elders. You should obey what they say in accordance with the scriptures. So if an elder says, go rob the store, you know, like, no, that's not in accordance with the scriptures. But as elders who are appointed by God to lead the church, say things to you publicly from the word like this on Sunday or privately ministering the word to you. As you say, these things are going on. You should hear those things, not from elders per se, but from God, because elders would be ministering the word. Therefore you should obey the elders in accordance with the scriptures and submit to the leadership of elders because God will hold the elders accountable in a different way than non elders. As it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Meaning elders have, um, 
an account that they will have to give a special account, if you will, not necessarily the best way to say it, for being elders as well. And for, for the elders here at Remedy Church, I mean, this is something we take massively <laughs> important. I, it weighs heavy on me week in, week out that I know as a pastor, I have to give an account to God. And so because of that, I want to be as textual and as biblical in every way. As a matter of fact, I've shown you all this sometimes. Literally 10 years ago when I started the church, I, I put a piece of tape on this, on this, it says, keep watch over their souls. You will have to give an account for 10 years. Every week when I preach, I literally look at that every single time because it's so unbelievably in my, my view, scary to think that I will have to give a specific account in the way that I have been a pastor elder here. And I know that Joe and even David and Chris think the same. And so, um, you would obey the elders submit to their leadership in accordance with the word um, because it says here, as the, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And so you want to do this in a way that brings them joy. As you can see it here, um, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the reason why you want to do it is because God has called them to this. That's the, that's the parallel track of the way I think you, you interact with them just as a member, but you also interact with them as an elder. There's a second way also, and it's in 1 Timothy Chapter five, 1 Timothy chapter five. Um, and I should say, uh, as I read this, it seems like you could say this is totally self-serving. I, it's not. I'm, I'm wanting to make sure that you understand the scriptures and even more so for Joe and David and Chris. Um, but the second thing is this. Second Timothy chapter five, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So this verse prescribes members of churches to think of the elders that lead the church to be considered of double honor. I mean, if they're in sin and outright sin and they're, you know, stealing money from the church or something that's just awful, right? Then it's different, right? But we're talking about those who are week in, week out, um, doing what God's called them uh, to do. Then it says, let the elders who do this be considered whether worthy of double honor. And I think that just means this, just real easy to understand. However you would honor people around you, the elders, you would do it double measure. I don't know what that looks like practically. And it's, it's, not, and I, it's not trying to be self-serving. But it does mean um, that it's important to think of your elders that you, they are members, but they're also called by God with a special account to lead. And you can say, why? Why would that be there? Why would that be necessary? And I just, it's, I think it's obvious, right? But because if the people of the church don't really honor the pastors then the rest of the church will also be influenced not to follow the leadership of the pastors and the pastors can't lead the church. They won't be able to lead. And so as the pastors are following the scriptures and ministering the word of God, then you would interact with them in these ways. So here's the closing challenges. Number seven, not a question. Um, so six questions and a challenge. Um, here's the way I want to close and for us to think about. Um, first is this, as we've gone through multiple texts, you've heard things that even though you might not ever be an elder or aspire to an elder, that still as a Christian, you can have in your life. You can put in your life, you can aspire to in your life, whether it be killing sin or treasuring Jesus supremely or watching over your own soul or, or living out qualifications where you are gentle and kind and or ministering to people around you that, that you know need help, etc. So just as a believer in Christ, all the things that you've heard today that might apply to 
elders, but also apply to Christians. Write some of those down and think about those things and ask the Lord to help you grow in your sanctification and seeing those things happen. Um, you can only do it by the gospel. You can only do it by the power of the spirit in your life because Christ has declared you righteous. But that's the first application. Think about all these things that are happening in your life that the Lord's sanctifying you in and ask God, Lord, sanctify me in those things. I may never be an elder, but Lord, help me do those things in my life. I want to be more sanctified. Second thing is, um, if you're a man uh, in the church, I would say aspire to the office of elder. And it's, as I said, it's not bad for you to come to the pastors and say, I'm not sure if I'm called to be or not, or I think I am called either way and say, help me understand what that looks like. And maybe I, I should be a pastor here at Remedy. You may or may not, but nevertheless, why would you not aspire? Every man should aspire to the office of elder and, and, and have these things. And then lastly, I would say, uh, in, in kind of more of a uh, specific application for you is this as a congregation is to pray for the elders um, and pray for the future elders that are coming as well. Um, there's, I don't think any amount of prayer that we couldn't use. Um, so please, of all the things we talked about and the enormous task that God calls pastor elders to do, one of the things that, that is super meaningful to the pastors is that the congregation prays for them. We pray for you, um, but we love it if you pray for us as well. To, as we uh, seek to accomplish this enormous task. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then we're going to close in prayer. Um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the good news of Jesus as Christians, that he gave his life on the cross for us, that we can be forgiven of all of our sin and washed clean. So uh, after I pray, whenever you're ready, you can come forward. Get the bread and the cup and come back to your seat. We'll also have a song playing. You're welcome to sing. And maybe you want to take a few moments to think and pray. And then uh, go to either the front or the back and get the elements and come back. And then I'll lead us corporately to take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the good news of Jesus that makes all of these things um, possible. Because, Jesus, you were willing to, as our chief shepherd go to the cross and obey the will of your father and die on the cross for our sin. And that by repentance and faith, we can be forgiven. We can put all of our hope and all of our faith in Christ because he's our only hope and that we can be forgiven because of that. Lord, we have the ability to come to you and grow in our sanctification and be the kind of church members you want us to be. And even Lord, some will be called to be pastors and can minister as pastor elders in, in your church, to your church, to your bride. And so, Lord, we thank you for this good news. We thank you for the cross of Christ that makes all of this possible. We, uh, we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper, our minds would be turned towards the sacrifice of Christ for us to be forgiven of all of our sin and now declared righteous and have your righteousness imputed to us. And now before God... We are completely declared holy and righteous. Thank you for Jesus, the chief shepherd. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.